Good evening, everyone, and it's so good to see you all again. And uh, tonight is about environmental issues. With the topic of this podcast being environmental issues in Canada, I would like to talk about a place of great importance, not just to me, but to all of us, the magnificent Canadian Arctic. I know that tonight we'll be talking at length about an array of issues. However, climate change affecting ice melt in the Arctic has to be one of the greatest threats not only to Canada's north, but the rest of the world. It is estimated that by 2030, the Arctic will be ice-free if patterns of ice melt continue at the same rate they are today. Temperature rise is happening faster in the Arctic than anywhere else on Earth. This warming is devastating wildlife populations, and it will eventually affect all Arctic species. I doubt any of you would like to sit with your children in front of the television one day with a National Geographic special on about the polar bear or the Arctic wolf and have to explain to them that once upon a time these charismatic beautiful animals lived but no longer exist because of human carelessness. All right, so welcome everyone to the second installment of We Are Talking. Um, Tonight we're going to be talking about the environment and environmental issues. So we're just going to go around and say our names. Uh, so I'm Catherine. I'm Ian. Um, I'm Connor. I'm Annette. I'm Beth. I'm Megan. I'm Jada. Awesome. Uh, so I think a good place to start is locally. There's uh, a pretty vibrant environmentalist community in Halifax, especially since the emergence of the sustainability program at Dalhousie, uh, which a few of us are a part of. Um, and uh, something that uh, I'm very interested in is sort of public perception of environmentalism and uh, sort of the, the push against a lot of it. Um, one of the things that's come up just in the past week that I think is really interesting is the new bike lanes that have been developed. I think there's a growing bikers population or cyclist population in the city, um, especially with people who are environmentally minded. And uh, I can't believe the incredible pushback that uh, the city's received for, for putting bike lanes and just connecting pre-existing bike lanes on, on Windsor Street and, and other ones. But it's been uh, ridiculous of, of how people automatically think that this line on the street's gonna change everything. And especially in Halifax, which has a huge student population, um, bikes being the most effective and affordable means of transportation to get around, uh, especially when student housing near universities is so expensive, people often live a little further away. Bike's the best way to come in. And um, I mean, as far as the planning of cities goes, it's a step forward in the right direction for sustainability and for a variety of, of concerns, environmental concerns, living within cities, but it, it's also just something incredibly simple that people can be a part of, riding a bike, that yeah, it's astonishing that there's such pushback towards it and resistance in a city that has just so much, uh, so many people that are cyclists, yeah. Yeah. Um, also too, I think, and, and this just doesn't go just for Halifax, but when you're looking at sort of the move to live in urban areas um, and how improp like impossible it would be to fill 
cities with cars, and, you know, London, England, you actually have to pay a tax to bring your car in because that's how many people are there. Uh, and so to discourage something as important as bike use, I think, is detrimental to the development of a young urban population. Um, and when you're looking at, I find a lot of people separate environmental sustainability from um, economic gain. And I think in a lot of cases, that's a really upsetting misconception because I think the two work very well together. Yeah, it's also interesting because a huge way that a city can boost its own economy is by having a denser urban core. Halifax is a pretty spread out urban core given the peninsula here being mostly residential old homes. And there's really a drive to make the downtown urban core more dense, which is great. But by by promoting things like bike lanes or even small amounts of green space, uh, you are promoting that aspect of living together because you know you don't have a backyard and you don't live so far out of the city that you're driving in every day. So it, it makes no sense to be kind of shunning bike lanes when it's actually all related to making more money and having a more a city that's more sustainable and also more um, economical. They've also recently installed um, bike repair. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what they stations. What, stations, yeah. yeah. It's like this big like green thing. They have like three of them, yeah. and it it's just really cool that like you can just like walk around and be like, oh, this is something that can hold my bike up, so I can like fix my wheel. And it's just it's kind of like not only is it aesthetically pleasing in a city, but it also just like promotes like the trendiness and the fashion, fashionable like bikes and like yeah. the thing like I heart bikes with trying to make yeah. that like a yeah. movement as well, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Well, even like uh, big C bikes, which are the rental bikes that mm -hmm. a lot of cities have been investing in have been really uh, positive, especially for tourism. I have a friend who actually leads tours uh, with iHeartBikes. Mm -hmm. Same, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just incredible how many people want to bike but don't know where to bike, don't yeah. know where it's safer to bike. There are streets that I personally avoid when biking, like the intersection of Roby and Quidpool. <laughs> that's just chaotic. <laughs> but that's bad to even drive in a car. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think city development uh, needs to take into consideration alternative forms of transportation in order to thrive. Mm -hmm. um, and just, yeah, just a lot of, I think a lot of practical environmental planning actually, and I said this already before, but actually benefits um, dense urban populations. Yeah. Um, and there's this fantastic um, internet kind of like walkthrough, and it has a picture of a street, and uh, on the street there are 50 cars, and in each car there's one person in it, and it shows you yeah. the amount of space that 50 cars take up, and then... It removes the cars, so the people are just there on the street. It groups them all together and puts them on one bus. And the amount of urban congestion that it gets rid of, which is a huge issue in, you know, with the increasing population of cities uh, in the next 50 years, uh, and makes it uh, environmentally friendly as well, or more environmentally friendly for people to get to and from wherever they need to go. And uh, issues of of urban planning and, and urban design are going to hugely impact the, the global future. I mean, uh, one of the articles we looked at uh, specifically pretty well states that with the, at the rate that cities are growing right now, the infrastructure can't support the number of people that are going to be uh, entering into them. And so radical design changes have to be made. And, and this can be something as simple as, you know, in, in Ottawa, um, 
where I'm from, they have a lot of businesses um, are putting solar panels on the top of their buildings, things like that. Green roofs are becoming much more common, especially on, on government buildings. The mm -hmm. War Museum yep. uh, is an entire green roof and um, really quite you know, a striking building in that regard too. So I think there is a, there is a trend uh, towards a greener style of architecture, but you know, it's kind of funny if you're going to promote a green architecture and then you're going to demote bike use. It, 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 progress needs to be made <laughs> continually in the same direction towards that. Well, coming from Denmark um, and Scandinavian countries, and not forgetting Holland, of course, mm. I mean, we're born on bicycles practically. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and our parents would have you at the back of the bike, and, and you know, and even today the planning in a in a city the size of Copenhagen, which is of course enormous now, is still planning for bicycles. Yeah. Everywhere. And it works perfectly. And there's a whole generation, every generation has been brought up with bicycling and it's healthy, it's good for you. Even in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, uh, I'll never forget, I went to Amsterdam about a year and a half ago and I saw a woman on a bike with an entire set of chairs. She had four like dinner chairs. <laughs> like I struggle carrying groceries. I have a saddlebag and a backpack, but uh, she was sitting on one and had the other three sort of artfully balanced on her bike, uh, which I thought was funny, but she it worked. She wouldn't have been able, you can't drive through Amsterdam in a car, especially one big enough yeah. to put four chairs into. No, and then you have your baby, you have your baby in a little car yeah. behind you. Baby sitting, looking at the world, and you're being—you know—it's good. We that's should do more of that in Halifax, shouldn't we? Yeah, but that's how we got around when when I was younger, yeah. and it became—if if you raise people in that way—and I think that there is a trend towards that, you know, especially if if your parents were kind of neo hippies. Right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, not saying that mine were, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, you have that aspect of, of an outing being something exciting that you can do as a family as well. And, and that's all part of this mentality of, you know, the, the fact is we don't live on spread out country estates or we don't live in horrible, squalid little, you know, housing commons. The fact is people are living together much more closely than they used to and they require a certain standard and for that standard to maintain you have to increase the infrastructure that goes around it and and that can even come from you know people people bring being brought up in that regard instead of you know having it beaten into them by <laughs> by school or something like that yeah I, I observed the other day a car with a family in it with uh, three children in the back and a mother and the father driving a mother and they were the kids were jumping up and down and screaming and yelling and I thought oh, wouldn't that be lovely to take them out of that car put them on a bicycle yeah. and they had to concentrate on the thing and just stop yelling and screaming you know yeah. um, something I'm uh, I've been reading a lot about lately is just the role of environmental education and how a lot of places in North America sort of have it wrong so to speak, in that like, and I was thinking about this because growing up, mm -hmm. when I also grew up in Ottawa, um, one day a week they actually closed down uh, one of the highways yeah. and open it up for biking, walking, running, rollerblading, whatever you want to do, you can do it so long as it's not in a car. Mm -hmm. um, it's hugely popular. Really popular, like thousands of people do it every, every week. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about if there was a Halifax sort of equivalent, and there, there are a couple days of the year. Once a month. Oh yeah, 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 that it happens, but it's not, um, 
it's sort of a special occasion sort of thing and so uh like what it what it teaches people a lot of the time is like you go out on this one day and you bike and so that justifies you you know driving to the corner store yeah. and you go out on earth day and you pick up one piece of garbage and you're you know you're an environmentalist or you turn off your your lights for that one hour of the year and and that's good and that's what's going to save the world and it's although it's important to introduce people to these concepts it's very it's dangerous thinking to let people believe that that is the definition of environmental sustainability because it's an effort and it's uh, trying to better understand a very complex issue uh, but it's barely even scratching the surface mm -hmm. yeah and, and ultimately i believe that widespread environmental change isn't going to come top-down effect government corporation individual family individual <laughs> it, it really is going to have to work in the opposite way um, because we're all individuals inhabiting a conglomerate society, we are all going to have to change our own trends towards something more uh, environmental, and that will then start to inform, you know, society as a as a unit as to what is and isn't acceptable. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, I think, a really important trend. I look. I remember, like, growing up, like, especially in taking the first environmental science class in your high school or any, <laughs> yeah. something, and. The, primarily focused on the animals like that are charismatic megafauna so like mm -hmm. the WWF panda or whatever if you donate to that everything will be fine it's just like a one-step like donation and I feel like you saved it yeah good, <laughs> good on you you saved a whale like you adopted a whale you gave 50 bucks like once like <laughs> I, I find it like similar to like the earth hour and like mm -hmm. it just needs to I think it needs to resonate in our lifestyle as habits not as like a like a feeling good about yourself for doing something once mm -hmm. And like starting at like the individual going up upwards it's also we're all consumers and like basically whatever we buy we vote we like yeah. have a vote in like what's right and what's moral in like the products that we have so deciding where our money goes is is extremely important i think in changing corporations and government policy and mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely I, what, what i find funny is on our last podcast when we were talking about body image, uh, something that came up too was the power of voting with, mm -hmm. with Vote your with dollar. Your mm -hmm. um, yeah, which is incredibly important. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah we, we've talked a little bit about, um, in past, about sort of the corporatization of uh, environmentalism. One of the things being sort of the, you know, you can buy a panda and save it with, you know, one installation of $50. <laughs> Um, and just sort of the da once more the dangerous effect that has, and and how it's it's also pinpointing specific animals and and uh, just sort of changing the real story. Um. Mm. Well, that's where the media comes in a lot, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once more, I think it alters it alters perceptions um, significantly too. Um, yeah, the perception of when you go into these websites or these uh, environmental groups or, uh, you know, you can, as you just said, you can you can put in $25 or you will now adopt, adopt a wolf, adopt a polar bear. What polar bear? What wolf? Yeah. And have a mug and a t-shirt to go along with it and a stuffed animal, right? It's, it's insane. But why don't they say, 
we need money to do this. This is the cause. This is what we're pursuing. Okay, money, that's what we need. But this thing about your, your child now thinks uh, he or she has a wolf adopted, like with a name on it, it's not, it's not a good thing. It's just like marketing. It's yes, just yeah, marketing it the environment. Yeah. It is. Well, it's because it's like an in thing now. Yeah. So like companies are now like trying to be more green. Yes. But <laughs> see, I think I think the problem is people are recognizing there's some sort of environmental um, dilemma facing us, and that we're kind of screwing everything up in terms of climate change and just all the wasting of resources that's going on. And people seem to have an interest in doing something about it, but for the most part, people just don't have time to invest in it. So when um, an organization advertises to them that by donating money, you're doing something that seems virtuous, um, they are saving the environment. And then it's an easy option for people and it seems effective. Although a lot of times the reason they wouldn't, you know, give an explicit example of what they're doing with the money is because they don't necessarily have a specific um, purpose for the money. These organizations, they they have the money to advertise and they have the money to increase revenue, and what they do with the money isn't necessarily going to be advertised in such advertisements as, um, say, WWF would do, and you know, donating money, saving polar bears, and yeah, I think just a lot of the time it's. People are kind of using that sort of guilt tripping as a way of making more money rather than actually doing anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guilt is fine if you actually want to change something, <laughs> but if you're just using it for a one one off. Well, just it to me, it feels um, really inauthentic, and it feels it sort of like paying for your sins. <laughs> Um, uh, an indulgence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the word. Uh, it's an indulgence. It's like, oh, well, you know, you drive your car everywhere, you litter, you don't recycle. Well, you know, buy this panda. Take 10 years <laughs> off your environmental purgatory. Yeah. Yeah. Air Canada. Yeah. Try to plant trees. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that helps. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like the, the whole concept of the environmental footprint, I think, is interesting because it's um, by no means a refined tool of measuring what um, sort of what your carbon output is. And there's a hundred different ways of measuring it and a million different websites that you can go on. Um, but the creator of it, who's actually lectured Adele a few times, has, has said yeah. that it's not sort of meant to be the, the end uh, spot of, of figuring that out. And, and what a lot of people, and what a lot of organizations do rather, um, is that they'll get some sort of environmental evaluation and then they will buy carbon credits. So by spending this much money in environmental uh, projects, they're actually reducing their carbon output, when really they're not reducing any carbon output. They're still pumping just as much carbon, but they're trying to sort of counterbalance it with another activity, which is equated to some sort of carbon scale, which is weird. Well, (laughs) I think one of the problems is is just how um, powerful in terms of... um, uh, monetary assets that the various companies which require in their uh, production of goods or whatever the um, large carbon outputs I mean the automobile industry and coca-cola or any sort of like consumer goods type of thing um, those companies have thrived on wasting oil and resources as as cheaply as possible and you know for them to actually change anything, 
could damage their output, uh, or sorry, their revenue take. And um, so I think that's pretty, uh, probably a, a reason why so many companies advertise some sort of green aspect about themselves. It might not necessarily be anything they do that's actually green, but with Coca-Cola, they have the polar bear campaign where if you buy one Coca-Cola, they donate, I don't know, 10 cents to the polar bears or something. And they have a I did hear that the polar bears are poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they would donate to WWF, and it was a little vague as to what was actually being done with the money. But um, yeah. And um, it sounded great, and it's like, okay, for one, there's not only are they selling Coke effectively, but they're also selling the idea that um, they're fixing their own problems they might be having in terms of environmental impact. And mm -hmm. then they are also s saving the, the, um, the consumer from feeling bad about the idea that he might be... Uh, you know, ruining the planet, and when in reality, the, I mean, no one, nothing is actually being really done for the most part. I mean, more money gets spent on advertising this campaign than actually spent from the money made in the campaign because they only have a four hundred thousand dollar limit to how much can be donated each year, and they have commercials everywhere for it. So it definitely costs numerous million dollars, millions of dollars, mm -hmm. considering apparently like a thirty second Super Bowl ad costs mm -hmm. a couple million dollars on its own. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I found in studying sustainability, there's sort of um, a very interesting divide between um, a lot of people that I studied with. Um, there were a very, or there was a very large percentage of my class that really believed in activism and political involvement, um, and are you know constantly taking place. Um, I have a lot of friends who went. New Brunswick um, a few weeks ago to protest fracking with the First Nations people uh, who live there. Um, and, and doing sort of those approaches, I have a lot of friends who move to Ottawa who are taking part in uh, sort of the more political side of it. Uh, something I've been very interested in is sort of the corporatization of environmental sustainability. And uh, just if you get, if you look at a company like Coke who's spending millions upon millions to advertise something that can raise, you know, what, $400,000? Um, if you get a company that large to change the way they, um, you know, deal with water consumption or recycling or, or anything like that, um, or just even like energy costs of a factory that's making bottles, uh, I think that is substantial. Um, and what needs to come next, I think, is... Uh, substantial development in environmental technology um, so that mass, uh, you know, multinational in, um, corporations will be able to f um, function and still turn a profit um, and be able to choose the environmental uh, choice. Well, see, I think a problem is, I mean, a lot of technologies are already existing. It's just that people aren't willing to accept them. Like, uh, mm -hmm. considering uh, windmill energy um, it's a pretty effective uh, tool for collecting energy um, compared to, I mean, oil consumption, which is pretty inefficient and terrible in general. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I mean, just a little bit of doubt in the media regarding, um, what, like, the, um, I guess, the efficiency or um, sort of the, the uh, I, I guess, you, the authenticity mm -hmm. of an alternative source of energy kind of keeps people from actually embracing it and 
um, a lot of times the companies that wouldn't would prefer you know maintaining the use of oil they have a lot of connections in the media which you know influences people um, news stations and I mean advertisements of course I mean the only things you ever see advertised really are like coca-cola and Gatorade and stuff like that so. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> owned by the same company, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so much bias within the media, and it really—I mean, people aren't necessarily just going to believe everything they hear and see on TV, but it's definitely going to give them cause to doubt or give them a precedent to doubt if they haven't even thought of the problem. And so, you know, you'll see the news stories where some sociologist is being asked about climate science. And he's, you know, going off the rails about all the sorts of things which climate scientists do actually agree on. It's just the fact that he's on TV is the reason why he's so influential. And, you know, actual agreement within scientific consensus doesn't really play as an important role in the way people see um, environmental issues. The issue with that is, too, um, with looking at, let's continue with alternative sources of energy, is... You're asking people to, corporations and people, to completely change the way that they do things. And if someone, you know, someone may see the benefits, if, if that was the only option given to them, then they really would have no choice. But when the old option still exists, then people have less incentive to try and, and change or maybe even to listen at all, right? And there's the idea that, um, you know, not yet, or it doesn't have to happen yet. You know, it's not pressing enough. And, um, you know, statistics about maybe Arctic ice melting, people hear all the time. But for some reason, it doesn't draw as much concern as no, it's as so the stock away. market. No, it's so far away. Right? Yeah. It's, not, it's kind not, of intangible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, like... They say climate change in the Arctic is going to cost us sixty trillion over, over the next ten sure. years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I mean it might, but in the near future, it's going to be extremely uh, um, um, monetarily beneficial when um, oil that's is exactly revealed what under say. those ice caps. But, but you're going to only make yeah. billions with that. But it, whereas in the Arctic, you're going to lose trillions with the temperature increase mm-hmm. and yeah. how it's going to affect the rest of the world. But like, it's just like a funny like comparison or what you think about. Again, you like think about oil, and just like last week, one of the biggest oil companies in Canada, uh, Canada has approved um, hydraulic drilling 400 kilometers north of Yellowknife, mm-hmm. and like you don't see about that, or like you don't hear about it very often. You're hearing about different things in the yeah. news and how different things are being portrayed. And the Northwest Passage being open. Oh, how wonderful! How wonderful <laughs> yeah. it is that we can put ships through there now. Oh my yeah. goodness! Yeah. And, and drill yeah. and drill and drill and drill. Well, and of course, you know the main ships that are going through there are tankers. Yes. yes. And, yeah, exactly. uh, and uh, cargo ships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Polluting, polluting everything yeah. on its way. We've yeah. invested more money in shipbuilding for um, Arctic icebreakers. Um, $35 billion. That's the most since World War II. <laughs> yeah. And and just last, last last week as well, Arctic Council, they've approved um, seven new countries, and the countries approved for observers are India and China. Why do you think India and China are being observers in the Arctic? Oh, there so happens to be ice cleared, and there's ships now going through there. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like, it's not necessarily like who actually should be a part of the Arctic, who has jurisdiction over the Arctic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's now based on, obviously, mm-hmm. trade and well, and there's a huge issue at stake because, I mean, in Canada should be spending as much money as it is for other reasons on shipbuilding. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, issues of sovereignty aside, there, there are massive reasons when the Northwest Passage opens up why we need to be promoting what is Canadian. The problem is, what is Canadian is this concept of, of people living in igloos and being snowed in up to your roof. And, you know, uh, that's not something, that's not a trend that we see anymore. It's, it's a dying stereotype, and people think it's a dying stereotype because, you know, oh, these myths are being shattered or whatever, and communication's better. But it's really just one of the reasons it can be attributed is just the plain fact that it's, it's not feasible, it's not realistic. Mm -hmm. And it might seem like a funny way to look at that problem, but, you know, you've got Canada's on this fence playing do we promote Arctic sovereignty and spend a lot of money building ships to break the ice, patrol the Arctic, or do we, you know, throw it all towards the environment? And you can't do both effectively. You're going to lose one game or another. But you see, the problem with sovereignty is that we're not talking about Canadian sovereignty alone. No, exactly. We're talking yeah. about the Russians Russia having a sovereignty, and, and we've got the Norwegians, <laughs> and we've got the, the French, and we've got the Americans. Like it's The U.S. Be, claim yes, a larger yeah, landmass yes, than exactly. any other country in the Arctic, and they have the least actual proximity. Yeah. Well, of course. And, and they're Denmark, the only ones that haven't signed the yeah. treaty. Yeah. 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 And Denmark <laughs> is going there as well because of Greenland. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's going to be a war. Mm -hmm. That's We're going to have yeah. a war. It, okay. Leave it alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Stop being greedy. <laughs> a few years ago, I was um, I was reading about um, sort of Arctic sovereignty and and sort of uh, and and this is I found this hilarious that the U.S. actually only owns one icebreaker, and I was yeah. like, well, that's ridiculous. They're not going to be able to do anything, but. Now, looking back at that statement, it's like, no, they just knew that we were going to continue to melt everything. So they actually probably saved themselves money. <laughs> There's an account ready to go. Yeah, 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 they were looking deep into the future. Uh, well, what you were saying before, Ian, about um, sort of this concept that, uh, you know, Canadians live in igloos and do all these things, I think is a funny one too, because as Canadians, we ourselves have this concept that we live in this big, environmental, beautiful place with mm -hmm. trees and water and, and all these beautiful things, when the fact is we are destroying it. Canadians are the number one wasters of water in the world. We consume more water than anyone else. Um, and if you look at somewhere like Australia, where uh, water shortage is becoming a reality, uh, they mailed out egg timers that you can put in your shower to every single citizen so that you could time your shower because mm -hmm. that's how dire the situation's getting. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, Canada is just burning, not burning through it, but just <laughs> using water like there's no tomorrow. Oh, yes. and, and the point of fact is, like, we think we have all of this, you know, massive, mass amounts of water, but, but most of it's not potable. Yeah. Like, I think 2% is, is what we can actually well, use. And you, you know, you, you grow up reading stories like, the hockey sweater. Yeah. Oh, I love the yeah, Right. Okay. <laughs> Great story. But, you, you know, uh, since I've been here in Nova Scotia, you know, all I hear about my, my friends from here talking about how, you know, when they were younger, so I'm 21, so not that long ago, they loved skating outside mm -hmm. on ponds and frozen lakes mm -hmm. in the winter. And I have never been able to... I've never even seen a lake frozen enough to skate on since I've been here. Um, and, you know, it's a different story, but in, in other parts of the country still, but it's just a, 
you know, you observe the climate and the area that you're in. Also, um, just doing some historical research on the Halifax area, the Northwest Arm used to freeze over regularly, and that's salt water, you know? So um, <laughs> that's a pretty disturbing trend for 100 years, mm-hmm. right? And, and they're, pic- they're etchings of it and, and pictures. And, <laughs> and to just go from this, yeah, building on this notion of living in kind of like a great white north mm-hmm. is not really feasible anymore, yet it's what every beer company will tout as their hockey night in Canada oh, yeah. opening mm-hmm. commercial. And it's just not a reality, mm-hmm. or it's slowly disintegrating. Is it a rumor that Canada is would be willing to sell water? Um, there have been a lot of instances in past where um, outside companies have actually tried to purchase water. Um, I know that there was at one point a deal with a company in China, and they were going to buy out some lake in Ontario. And there was zero publicity made about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just sort of an under the table, this is going to happen. This was um, in the mm-hmm. 90s. And uh, someone caught wind of it, an environmentalist caught wind of it, and just blasted the media. And instantly, the second it hit newspapers, it just got canned. Within the last five years, though, Nestle's been trying to purchase the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. And they've actually gotten pretty close to like yeah. getting a hefty amount of water. The CEO actually had, was quoted on saying explicitly that he wants to privatize the water, like water as a commodity. Like France. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a huge issue with that even by changing, you know, a d- change in Canadian uh, legal culture at the federal level by, you know, the Navigable Waterways Act mm-hmm. made, you know, it, to be fair, it didn't change a lot, but what it did change is a is a fairly disturbing amount of of fresh water that can be purchased by companies, mm-hmm. and it hasn't been opened up, of course. But you know, steps aren't far away. Well, if you look at Bolivia as sort of a case study, um, it was in two thousand five that they decided to privatize water, um, and so one day citizens woke up and were told that they had to pay for their water and their taps were turned off if they didn't. Um, and what ended up happening was just a massive uprising. And I just remember reading articles and watching videos of people having to wait in line for hours upon hours upon hours to get a liter of water to bring back home. Um, and so what happened was a black market sort of water, so people were digging wells and getting arrested for for doing that and being put in jail for for catching rainwater, uh, when it's just absurd because it's literally the elixir of life. <coughs> like mm-hmm. that sounds uh, strangely, or scarily familiar to the whole deal with Monsanto and their seed yeah. policy, mm, yeah, where they, you know, because um, if you're um, if, if say you're just some farmer who doesn't use Monsanto seeds, but then your seeds are cross pollinated with theirs, then you have to pay. You have to pay for new seeds, and if you, you know, reuse the seeds you collect, then you'll be sued mm-hmm. for, something for, for, for something you didn't even want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or, like, it even, like, goes in, like, it wrecks your organic certified, too. Yeah. yeah. And it's just not fair. <laughs> yeah. And it's basically just putting a price on something that really doesn't belong to anyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can create your own version of a of a seed, but it's not like you own 
the life itself. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a weird sort of perspective. And having that sort of perspective on water is even worse, I think, considering that water is such a transient thing. And to just say that I own all of it, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> this is my thing. It moves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, looking at, at GM Foods and, and sort of... Um, I think it's especially interesting to have you here talk about this because I think the mindset is very different in that, you know, like North America is the GM capital of the world. The European Union wants nothing to do with it. Um, majority of genetically modified foods actually come from North America. There was um, a food shortage happening. I I'm, I'm, can't remember where. Um, during a drought and the U.S. was going to donate all of this miracle GM food supply to them and the country actually said, keep your poison. <laughs> we, we don't want that. Um, and I think the fact that we, you know, as these environmental Canadians openly are just like, yeah, like, give me all the GM foods. I have no problem with it. And like, I... I'm just as bad as uh, most people in this. Uh, you know, I can't make it to the farmer's market every week. I eat a lot of foods that probably are not grown uh, ethically, so to speak. Um, but it's sort of the way that society has built in consumerism into our lives. And it, 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 they've made it easier to, uh, to choose not to care. Um, I feel like it's not necessarily that we're being like um, we're, we're, they're telling us not or we're choosing not to care I feel like a lot of times media kind of tells us what to care about and if it's in the interest of the main companies in the media to um, you know not really pay much attention to environmental issues then they're not going to put much of an emphasis on doing so to the you know people they advertise to to mm -hmm. be counterproductive for them. and so you know when you have if you you know when you have the green coke it's um or like you know coke as being a green company but um when you, when you have coke advertised as a green company it's not that they're appealing to some interest which is really out there it's they're trying to maintain a lack of it mm -hmm. um and by um advertising themselves as being green they'll be telling people that they're buying something that's okay for them to buy and um and how it affects the environment so it's as if there is no problem. And so, same with all, you know, the, the climate change denial that goes on in the news. I see it all the time still. Even though, I mean, we're kind of 10 years past the point where, okay, yes, it's a problem. <laughs> At least 10 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, maybe 40, depending on your perspective. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, we're, we're basically being told there's nothing, like there's nothing to see. Because I'm easier, mm -hmm. folks, and you know, <laughs> I think people need to really notice that there is something going on, yeah. and it, it is really hard for a lot of people living in um, Canada, for I think, to avoid that sort of problem, though. Because I mean, even here at school, I, I know a lot of the food at this at the cafeteria is local, but I know, and all I know, a lot of it isn't. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we got a limited supply of Seven Up and Pepsi and whatnot, so. I mean, we're, we're basically paying to be forced to always choose the same things mm -hmm. in that situation. And, and choose, choose is a funny word, too. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, yeah. I remember we make up the competition. Yeah, mm -hmm. and Food Incorporated, how um, 
They, they were describing the uh, choice of available in a grocery store as being a sort of illusion in that mm -hmm. much of it's owned by the same sort of, or at least subsidiaries of the same companies. Yeah. Or in that the ethical, um, you know, intentions of the companies definitely don't vary much. I just find it really ridiculous when you walk into a grocery store, like the superstore on Quinpool, it's like, um, right when you walk in, it's the natural foods yeah. right know. there, and then you go and you look, I guess the rest of it is like yeah. fake food. <laughs> it's very yeah. ridiculous. It is really funny. Um, but back to food as well, it's like, um, the whole concept of needing money to buy kind of, like, in a way moral more moral food and sustainable food and it's like that in itself is a problem mm -hmm. because it's also it's, it's a class issue for one thing um but i actually i think there's solutions to that problem um in the summer i worked on a farm for just a week and a half and like just until this week i'm still getting a free csa coming every week that's like from this one farm and it's just from like my own like laborious work hours, but like people need to know that those options exist. Basically, like mm -hmm. I don't know if people even know that because like you can pay for a CSA as well, like a community supported agriculture, but um, it is a lot of money as well. But if you like do labor with your own two hands, like it's very possible to like to kind of. Mm -hmm. St stick it to the man a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually is, I think, really important to note that Halifax does have a lot of local yeah, farmers with yeah. CSAs so available. Yeah. And at numerous different levels, I have uh, a lot of friends who have very minimal um, deliveries made either, you know, once a month mm -hmm. or once a week. Um, and sometimes, you know, they're looking at their basket and just saying, <laughs> what am I going to make with this? Uh, but uh, it definitely teaches people uh, how to cook. I think mm -hmm. something important that we ignore in North America is cooking seasonally. Mm -hmm. So like the fact that we want to eat avocados in December and corn in, uh, you know, like it, it's, it's insane. Um, do you guys, have you guys heard of uh, John Steinman? Oh no, I'm thinking of Steinbeck. <laughs> uh, John Steinman uh, had a uh, show on CBC yeah. radio uh, he's one of the co-founders of the Kootenai Co-op, which was the first co-op grocery store created in the country. It's uh, pretty successful. I got to go visit mm -hmm. it a couple of years ago, which was really exciting. Is it in Nelson? Pardon? Is it Nelson? BC? Yeah. I, I went yeah. there too. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a really cool model. It's been really mm -hmm. successful. Um, but he sort of runs this expose on local, organic, these sorts of things. Um, it's a really, really interesting series. But he uh, sort of attacks some people, so to speak, there was, um, people kept calling him and reporting that uh, there was this so-called local egg supplier and no one really knew locally where these chickens supposedly were. And so he actually looked up details and, and found the address and then, you know, just a simple Google of the address, uh, he found a listing, the person was selling this property and he walked around and took pictures and videos and not a single chicken was on site. So he reported it, um, and there were no repercussions. Um, he, like, yeah, I remember him. He actually came to Dow, and he was, like, uh, he, he let everyone know that he, like, pretended to want to be a buyer of the house, and he actually saw, like, huge boxes of Cisco eggs. <laughs> 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 and th these people are basically, like, fake 
local farmers. And nice. Yeah. <laughs> that you feel good about yeah. yourself. Haha, <laughs> 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 ha, I tricked them. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so do you guys, do we maybe want to turn towards uh, towards the Arctic? Yeah. I know we, we've danced around the issue. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> um, with um, the Arctic in Canada, I know a big upcoming issue is ecotourism. Mm. Um, and um, I guess there's issues surrounding it. Um, some are the increase for demand and so supply and demand um, causes a need for more infrastructure um, in the Arctic and um, basically also more flights, more, uh, <laughs> uh, more cruises going because that's a very big and upcoming thing like my grandparents went on a cruise around Alaska and and it, more planes yeah and, and more, more planes, planes yeah causing more pollution yeah. and basically this will affect um, more um, you know all the infrastructure can affect uh, caribou migration and like basically wildlife migrations um, and a lot of the time with ecotourism it's based on like adventure tourism and the whole point is to like go and see a wolf in its natural habitat and hear the wolf howls at night. Um, but basically, like Arctic wolves, <laughs> they've lived in isolation for so long. Mm -hmm. when, when human activity starts happening to an extent that it's really affecting wolves, and it actually is affecting wolves, like their reproduction levels are, are um, changing drastically and they're actually leaving their dens and finding other dens <laughs> um, that are more secluded and isolated from humans. and it's it's an unsustainable practice, ecotourism, in that sense. But an interesting thing that I found out about ecotourism in Canada is that it actually, in the 80s, I found out that it essentially saved the wolf populations from, from being exterminated from um, bounties or wolf hunts put on by the government mm -hmm. because um, um, Basically, when tourists go somewhere they in Canada, they want to hear a wolf owl, which is kind of wild Canada, the image of wild Canada. Um, and just when that didn't happen, because they knew of like killings happening like from trophy hunters or the government calling the wolves, they were very angry, and protests in the 70s and 80s ended up with... Um, I know in Ontario, the bounty was it ended because of protests from these tourists. So it's a, it a really interesting issue. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it helped them so much in the past, but now it's a very unsustainable thing that's occurring. I also think that trophy hunting is something that is, is in the works so much under the radar. Mm -hmm. When you go into and you Google trophy hunting and whatever, and they charge you, let's say, $25,000 for something like that, uh, and to go home with a pelt. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always like, yes, come and enjoy, you know? Yeah. It is, and it's sort of in the dark. Mm -hmm. We don't hear, we don't know, because they know that this is a very, very sore issue. Mm -hmm. Like, even yeah. if you go on the government website um, to look at, like, Arctic wolves, they'll have, they don't even say it's a species at risk, where mm -hmm. if you cross-list and look at conservation, 
um, organizations are like this. This is an at-risk species, but and it's hilarious. You go to the trophy. Like I went to a trophy hunting yeah. website. It's like you can get a wolf for three if you pay us three thousand dollars. We'll get you a wolf pelt. If you get the se- if you get a second one, it'll cost you another thousand yeah. dollars. And then you look at the bottom, and it's like hunter certification. And then you click it, it's like approved by Government of Canada. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like what? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it's the same for polar bears. Yeah, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah. It is horrendous. Yeah, and the Government of Canada trophy hunting fee is only $150 per um, pelt that they export out of the north, which it's, is ridiculous. Yeah, it's yeah. funny that that's what the cost yeah. is valued. Yeah. It's, it <laughs> Monetary value with nature is just crazy yeah, to me. Like, exactly. how can you put a dollar on something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what's really interesting about this trend, this ecotourism, is it's, it's much like what the African savanna was mm-hmm. at the turn of the last century. Mm-hmm. Um, and this whole idea of taking a vacation to the last great frontier. Fortress conservation. Yeah, yeah. and it yeah. is really, really astonishing mm-hmm. because there are people that would argue that it promotes awareness of the mm-hmm. environment, but it mm-hmm. might, but just the fact that so many people are doing it yeah. is having a reverse effect and back to education like think about when growing up you knew what a lion was you know what a tiger was you know what the local bird in nova scotia is like it's just like hilarious how like you know about these like very like charismatic megafauna again i think it's like the fab four or like something (laughs) about like the african animals but like you know like these animals off the bat like when you grow up well like i can't tell you what is like I can't look at a bird that's like right close to me and be like that's that kind of bird like I wish I did but like it's just like such a funny thing how like different you didn't do girl guides did you (laughs) (laughs) they caught me (laughs) but it's just no but you're absolutely right and and it is yeah it is really astonishing how how a, a price is being put on that but there's also this mystique right there is a draw for people to go and do this and you kind of get to be an adventurer, right? And and that whole idea of going and being an adventurer is, it's not new to Western civilization, right? Uh, been doing it since 1492. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is an interesting, the, like the shift is interesting. And the repetition. And the repetition. Like, do you think we would have noticed what's going on, or like how the trend can be negative on the environment, and yeah, it's just gonna repeat itself if nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, provincial parks were started so that, like, so that they would have nature saved so they could shoot, so people could shoot it. Yeah. It's like, so the rich elite could shoot mm-hmm. And that's animals. one of the arguments for, like, trophy hunters and how, mm-hmm. like, they're so good because they're, like, they put so much money towards conservation <laughs> to kill the animals that they're conserving. <laughs> Um, well, what class of people are these people exactly. coming from? It's yeah, yeah. elite, yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I found an article that's pretty much stated that it's more efficient, or it's more um, beneficial to have ecotourism tourism rather than trophy hunting as like a conservation technique, um, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and if you do ask questions and you really begin to just s- scratch the surface, you are in trouble. You will not get answers. You will not. I think a big something that I believe to be one of the biggest issues with modern day environmentalism is just a lack of transparency. Um, And I feel like a lot of the things we've talked about tonight go back to that sort of bottom line in that we're not we're not seeing the full picture. It's an iceberg. It's a melting iceberg. (laughs) Um, 
uh, and and uh, we're not we're not seeing the full picture. Um, I've been working for the past few months uh, on a campaign at Dalhousie, um, just trying to get uh, the institution to release their uh, investment plan and their endowment funds. Um, what most schools, most large schools, Dalhousie size, and Dal's the smallest of all the big institutions in Canada, but uh, most schools in Canada that are considered to be large are actually pretty heavily invested, along with most you know, large Canadian companies, in uh, oil sands. Um, and despite the fact that I was in, or am in the sustainability program, this isn't something I knew until I, I started looking into it. Um, and if you were to go and ask, you know, any student, any regular Joe student on the Dalhousie campus, if they thought that their school, you know, by paying tuition and attending this institution, they were supporting mm -hmm. uh, oil sands, they would say no. Um, and so I think in any situation, for me, transparency is number one on my agenda for that campaign. I think students need to know where their money's going, be it, you know, in oil sands or anything else that might be unethical. Um, but, um, you know, in, in, in everything you do and in everything you put your money into, I think you need to realize sort of what the environmental cost actually is. And that's, and that's really important. And to, to go forward and actually ask questions and, uh, and push things. And don't just take everything that's being fed to you. Would it make a difference, you think, if Canada had a larger Green Party? with more uh, influence like we have in Europe. We have very large green parties that really does get into you know, situations where they can make a difference. I feel that here in Canada, your green party is that one, two people, right? Elizabeth May. Elizabeth May has yeah, the seat. And they're fighting a good fight, but does anybody? Well, if you look at, um, I have a deep love for Germany. Yeah, um, so do I. <laughs> the home of environmentalism, but all German parties, whether they are left wing or right wing, they actually have really uh, intensive environmental uh, policy. And I think the difference between something like the Green Party, and this is 100% just an opinion, um, and when you look at um, these parties that, that identify with not just environmentalism, is that in a place like Germany, environmentalism is built into the structure of society. It's built into the economy. It's built into the way everyone functions. Um, and I think right now in Canada, um, and the, the big perception that people get is that you're either voting for economics, um, you know, and you're voting for a stronger Canadian dollar, um, and for everyone to have a job, or you're voting for, uh, you know, or you're voting for the environment. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, but I think environmentalism isn't as embedded in politics as it should be. Yeah, that's a that's the point I'm I'm building off of because I believe politicians want votes. Any political that's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> if not, I think they're in the wrong. Place. There's an issue. <laughs> any political party that what any political party, regardless of they're the Green Party or not, that. Mm -hmm feel that felt like they would be able to capitalize on an environmental movement would be doing it. Mm -hmm. That already, that they tried that once in the Liberal Party and failed miserably, right? And were laughed 
at everyone for it or by everyone for it. I think saying that, you know, especially in a democracy, wanting a stronger representation in the government of green or environmental politics is direct correlation of people wanting that. And I don't, I truly don't believe that the majority of Canadians would rank that in among their top three issues that people, that they are concerned with for themselves. Because we have this really small population, massive natural green space, huge ecosystem, zuh, and I, I don't think that it's, it seems like a pressing issue for people at the government level. Well, I think it's also, um, there's also the influence of, um, again, the media and, um, you know, a lot of companies, like um, I previously mentioned, um, aren't, they, it would be counterproductive for them for um, environment sort of aware, environmental awareness to be a bigger issue. So a lot of people are influenced to not really care about the environment. I mean, you look at, if you ever look at the news channels on TV, most of the time, they're not going to be talking about climate change, and if they are, they're going to be probably talking about protesters against windmills or something. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just, most of what's on the news is either violence or politics, and... <laughs> and they do that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, because that's just, people aren't really interested in the environment, so, yeah. Well, people, it's also that they don't want people to be interested yeah. in the environment. People are being, basically being told that it's not worth being interested in, or that their interests should be cursory, because it's not probably not a problem. I'd be careful taking that too far because I think to say that there is this big brother hand, <laughs> this invisible hand that is manipulating exactly what they want everyone to think is a bit of a dated idea in our current society. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I think that people more frequently think what they want to think. And I'm going to come out and say that our generation especially are not the people that listen to CBC radio. They they listen to, I mean, I do. Yeah, yeah so but, do I. But I think, <laughs> what, I think what, those, what a lot of younger people are doing are other sorts of media mm -hmm. where they can choose what they yeah. want exactly. It's like ADHD Definitely. media. It's like, sure, like, yeah. And it can even, yeah. you know, this can even be on someone's Tumblr or... Mm -hmm whatever the fact that they are that people will be interested in what they want and they can get those ideas from somewhere other than a major media source and i think that that's a good thing mm -hmm. but also I, I a difficult one to to categorize yeah right? i think it's also important to note that nova scotia actually has one of the most um interesting policies that we'd have like to have 30 percent renewable energy by 2000 and uh, what is it, 2015, mm -hmm. and that's unlike any other province. But the only reason is that the only reason that happened is that the Minister of Education or in the Environment and Labor, Bill Leahy, um, pushed a policy at a certain time because he did something great in another place. And the, the premier's like, "Oh, I'll listen to you. Like, mm -hmm. submit submit me something." And they do, and they get it passed. And it's it's all about like timing and mm -hmm. strategy. And it's just like it's just a funny thing. But whether or not that's actually going to be met is. Yeah, because the there's the problem with the environment. There's no enforce consistent enforcement throughout the way. Like the only enforcement that this policy has is that they have to um, go to the cabinet and have a report once a year, and it's like, oh, I didn't, we didn't pass that. Oh darn! Like there's nothing like mm -hmm. nothing really like pressing and pushing. But I was thinking the other day about about how old I was, 
And I remember in grade nine, uh, when I learned how to do PowerPoint presentations, we all had to do a PowerPoint presentation on the Kyoto Protocol. And I just remember writing about how much it was going to save the world and how great it was and, and it was going to change everything. And looking back at that paper, which I actually found, which is why this came up, was just kind of like, oh. Uh, like, there's no way to really enforce it. And, and I think it just comes back, to, like, I think political policy needs to be, I don't think it necessarily is right now, but it needs to be a direct reflection of sort of social norms. And until we, as a population, decide to change the way or change our attitudes towards environmentalism and, and the way we interact with um, with the world politics are are going to stay where they are we're going to look at dollars and cents um, and that's going to be number one talking about the dollars and cents pipelines fracking where are we going are they going to sign off on that pipeline <laughs> there's a lot of push against it um, Part of the reason why I'm, I, I'm interested in participating in this divestment campaign is um, sort of it's, it's sort of duplicating the divestment uh, from South Africa during the apartheid, which was one of the largest divestment campaigns that started in church communities and uh, schools, so institutions. Um, and it started off slowly, but within a fairly short period of time, uh, they actually got governments to stop um, you know, putting any money to South Africa until this was dealt with. Um, and this divestment in oil sands campaign, I think, is growing. Um, it's not as widely noticed at this point in time, but there are over a hundred uh, institutions now in North America that are participating, and there are actually a number of schools on that list where the administration has openly uh, pulled out funds. And, and if you look at uh, Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, one of the largest um, banks in Canada and even the world, uh, has publicly uh, taken a stance against uh, oil sand development. Um, and I think that needs to happen on, on a much larger scale, and I think it's gaining momentum. Uh, but if you look at a lot of campaigns, a lot of um, political campaigns right now, it's sort of telling you that you know, if we don't have the, the Keystone Pipeline, if we don't frack, well, you know, the regular Joe who can't afford the fancy university degree won't be able to get a job, and that's your fault. You know? Actually, yeah, I remember about a year ago, I, every morning, uh, my parents like to watch the um, CTV news or in the morning, and every, every day, I would see the same um, commercial uh, sponsored by... Uh, I can't remember which company specifically, but anyway, it was a pro uh, oil sands commercial, and it was basically talking about how you know they give people jobs and they help the economy and it's all good, and it's making people's lives better. And I saw that like repeatedly every day, and drilling it, drilling it into your head. Yeah. And into <laughs> well, just like like why not invest in a renewable energy? You know, you'll create jobs if you need to have people to build windmills to, to run mm -hmm. these wind farms to generate the energy to, you know, to further develop that industry. I think there's a huge, uh, like, economic sort of boom that, that can be had, but because we're so far back in technology, 
there's there's a lot of issue with that because it can't grow as fast and it's you know not as in high of demand as oil is right now. Yeah, can being the operative term mm -hmm. because if you're asking a major academic, financial, whatever institution to divest out of something that is incredibly lucrative mm -hmm. and a, in, you know in a global economic climate that is less than ideal. Um, and and proposing you know where do you put this money towards well you know it would be wonderful if they could put it towards mm -hmm. green energy renewable resources but the long story or the short the short version of that story is that it is not immediately economically profitable and sadly but it's just a fact that is what that is what a, a monetary fund tries to do people don't try to invest money in something to help save something unless they're donating their money and not hoping for a financial gain as soon as you're looking for a return on your money you go where it's easiest to make it and you know ethics and morality and virtuosity aside it's not existent there well i i think i think the ethics used um by different companies and how they operate is dependent on how like the values people have because mm -hmm. if I know that say um, I don't know uh, some company hires child labor in um, the Middle East then I probably you know wouldn't buy that product but um, I think one of the main problems is um, like you said earlier transparency in that a lot of companies are able to kind of sort of just step around any sort of ethical problems that their products might entail you know people don't know really how the animals which go into fast food meat are treated and I mean lots of people look into the issue and find lots of problems but you know it's, it's kept in the down low for the most part and the same is true of all you know um, negative implications for the environment in terms of production considering a lot of companies can just say we do this thing that's pretty green right saving polar bears and they're not even really saving polar bears they're just throwing money at the WWF or is it the WWF yeah. anyway <laughs> But I think I think really we need to for people to be able to make responsible decisions in which companies they sort of align themselves with you know by voting with their dollar. Companies need to have everything available for the consumer to you know be witness to, and including you know ethics and um, environmental implications of what they do. And until that sort of stuff, that sort of information is available, then people aren't really know gonna be able to know what they can buy um, with a good conscience. And mm -hmm. if they can't really know, then they're probably not gonna really care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. to, to continue to play devil's advocate on the issue, um, you know, there's a difference between uh, buying a product that is maybe more sustainable and you know investing in your personal future. If you tell me. In when I retire at the age of 60 that I can have $150,000 for my retirement if I invest in company X or if you tell me and you know or if you tell me or if you invest in company Y which is a ethically produced sourced blah 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 and you'll get $80,000 for your retirement and if you're asking me what I personally hold as or a person as what they personally hold as as more important to them that becomes a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. Well, when, when you're dealing with products like, say you have Coke and Pepsi, and um, 
it is well known, or say say it is known by you that Coke, um, you know, produces twice the amount of carbon emissions as Pepsi. I mean, that's probably not true at all. But I'm just saying, like, as an example. So, so you would know that they're fairly similar products, and you might not necessarily have a bias, and you know that one, you know, is a lot less damaging in how it's made. Then that would probably influence the consumer to choose Pepsi. But in the case of advertising, say. For some reason, Coke has twice the amount of advertising funds as Pepsi. They'd probably be doing a pretty good job of making themselves seem better, regardless. Mm -hmm. And I think um, if you know it was the main concern of most people um, to you know make environmentally friendly choices, then um, I think they would be paying a lot more attention and maybe you know forcing companies to let us know what is actually going on. I think one of the articles that we read was actually a study that proved that we don't care about our grandchildren's lives, uh, essentially, saying that we would rather continue the way that we currently live than sacrifice um, our current uh, lifestyle, knowing that our children and grandchildren will be able to live in a world um, that is environmentally stable. Um, and I think Going back to Ian's point about the sort of what would you rather retire with, um, something that, that I think people need to start thinking about because this is a reality for this generation that wasn't a reality for the last generation. It's You're not looking at $150,000 versus $80,000 to you know, use those numbers, but you're looking at $150,000 um, and the lives of your children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm versus $80,000, you know? Yeah. Is it worth it to have a nice summer home that you get to relax in because you have this this extra money? Or do you care if your children are faced with, uh, you know, water shortage, um, that they have to fight for, uh, you know, sort of environmental uh, sustainability and um, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, sovereignty it just it, it's uh, I think it's important to for this generation uh, more than any other generation to start thinking in more than dollars and cents uh, because what's gonna be dollars and cents soon is things are things like natural resources more so than now it's not we're not gonna be looking at trading lumber we're gonna be looking at okay, now we actually need this to survive. We don't need lumber to build these massive buildings anymore. We actually need agriculture and lumber and all these things because we're going to die without it. Yeah, in a way, we're back to National Geographic <laughs> yeah. once upon a time. Full circle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we're going to yeah. wrap up here. Does anyone mm -hmm. want to say any last remarks? Well, I, I think before any change on any level is going to become, you know, prevalent. I think people really need to know that it's actually an important issue that it will not even necessarily directly affect their grandchildren, but it will directly affect them. Mm -hmm. Considering that, um, I mean, the climate change or the, the, the global war global warming is happening at a faster and faster rate because it's just a sort of viciously accelerating process in that, you know, the less Arctic ice you have, the more carbon emission or the more heat is absorbed into the ocean. And so it's just going to keep getting worse faster. And it's people need to realize that their lives are going to be a lot worse sooner <laughs> if um, you know they don't at least try to do something about it now. And I think 
it would be very helpful for a lot of people for these sorts of issues to be more black and white, but I mean a lot of times they're not. But some some aspects are in that you know the less water you use when showering, the better. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it needs to be thought of is this going to do this or is this going to do this. Um, I think it needs to be like is this going in the right direction or is this going in the other direction, which is you know not so good. And so you know maybe it'd be good to know that. Um, using less paper, you know, like printing things that you don't need to be printing, it'd be helpful to cut back on that sort of thing, or you know, just any sort of way in which you could be going in a better direction. I think that would just overall influence change. And yeah, and and like I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, in that it's not changing a habit; it's changing a lifestyle. 